Good morning, everybody. Hey, welcome to church. It's great to have all of you here. If this is one of your very first times at Faith Community Church, I've seen some new faces this morning. I just want to say a special word of welcome to you. We really are honored to have you with us today. Thanks for giving us part of your morning, and uh, I trust what you hear and what you're going to experience will be helpful to you, and I'd love to meet you afterward uh, if, if you'd like to. Uh, also, I just have to give a quick shout out to anybody that graduated this weekend. Did anyone graduate this weekend? Anybody at all? Hey, there, you, want to take, you want to take a bow? You go ahead. Let's give him a hand. Anybody else? <clears throat> the first service was loaded with high school. People who just graduated from high school, and now they're all home planning their grad parties, I suppose. Everyone thinks that graduation is a rite of passage. Really, it's the grad party that is the rite of passage, because you have to stand there and shake hands with strangers and wish them well, while all your friends are over playing beanbags or something like that and eating your food. So anyway, if you graduated, congratulations. We love you guys. We're so proud of you, and we're praying for you, just asking that God would prepare a really good place for you wherever he's taking you next. And I have some things I'm going to say to you this morning, okay? So you better listen up, all right? We're continuing a, a series, well, we're finishing a series this morning called The Stories We Tell, and we've been taking a, a, trying to take a close look at what exactly has transpired for us in the death and resurrection of Jesus and comparing that with the uh, other stories we tell ourselves or, or that the world is telling us about how the world works, what spiritual reality is like, who we are, what God is like, et cetera, et cetera. And the bottom line in this series, again, is just a reminder that there are stories the world is telling us or that we are telling ourselves about spiritual reality called plausible arguments that sound good, they make some sense, but in the end, when you really hold them up to the Word of God and to what Jesus has done in His cross and resurrection, ultimately they don't pass the test. And that's how you know you're listening to a, what the Bible calls a plausible argument. This morning we're going to be wrapping things up by taking a look at uh, what our relationship with the world looks like. Okay, and to do that, we're going to be reading in the New Testament letter of 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 17. You can find that on page uh, 1015 in the Bibles under the chairs in front of you if, if you want to follow along in that. Before we even read the whole thing, I just want to talk about one thing in verse 9. Okay, so get it out. Page 1015, tell me when you're there. All right, here we go. Let me just read this one verse, and then I want to kind of set the table with, with just one observation. <clears throat> First Peter 2.9. So this is uh, the Apostle Peter writing to the church. So it says, but you, that's plural, you, you all, you, all y'all, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Okay. Here's one of our big takeaways for this morning. That is that the kingdom of God is not a metaphor. The kingdom of God is not a metaphor. It is not merely symbolic. It is not figurative. The kingdom of God is also not a reference to heaven, although that's a part of it. The kingdom of God is a real kingdom with real boundaries, real citizens, real ambassadors, real embassies, a real mission with real authority to carry out that mission and a real king. 
And Jesus is the king. After his resurrection, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So Jesus really does reign over everything. And he is reigning right now. Now, not everyone recognizes that authority yet. Okay, there are spiritual powers and authorities that are waging a a fighting retreat right now, and not all people recognize his authority right now. But the fact is that as we speak this morning, Jesus really is gathering people from all of the nations into his kingdom, and it is growing. Also, what this means is that history is not unfolding haphazardly. So in the book of Revelation chapter 5, there's this scene where the scroll of history is brought forth and no one is found in heaven or on earth or under the earth who's worthy to take the scroll of history and unroll it. And then suddenly Jesus appears and he is found worthy because he's conquered and he's given the scroll of history and he begins to open its seals. And It's just a way of saying Jesus is the one unfolding the story of the world right now. And and he told his disciples when he was with them, he said... You know, you're going to hear about wars and rumors of wars and there's going to be famine and disease and every kind of heartache you can think of and these things are going to seem like the main thing that's going on. But they're never the main thing that's going on. The kingdom of God is the main thing that is happening in the world right now. now there, I don't say this to, to denigrate or to make light of everything that's happened in the world recently, okay? But to put it in perspective for you. So a lot of things have been in the news in the last couple of weeks, but here's, here's another that you definitely did not hear about in the news. Last week, Pastor Larry Zyman returned from another trip to Uganda where he had the opportunity to be present when 37 Ugandan church leaders graduated from a a modest theological training program that he's helped lead them through for four years. These 37 church leaders in the last four years have already planted five churches in Uganda. Almost all of them are younger than me, and I'm super young and hip and cool. What do you think they're going to do in the next 10 years with better theological training and a better grasp of God's word? And then he crossed the border into South Sudan where an archbishop from the Anglican church has invited him over. This archbishop is in charge of 500 churches in South Sudan. And he wanted to meet with Larry to ask, can you do for us what you've done in Uganda? And that was, you know, at Faith Community Church, we are this much of the kingdom of God. Can you see how small that is? My fingers are actually together, okay? We, we represent, we have knowledge of like this much that is going on in the kingdom of God. And that kind of thing that I just told you about is happening all around the world all the time. And you are never going to hear about it on the news. And that's because Jesus said that the kingdom, which is a real kingdom, with a real king, is like a mustard seed that somebody throws in the ground. Nobody cares. No one can see it. But slowly, inevitably, it takes root, it begins to grow, it puts out branches, and soon it becomes the largest of all the garden plants, blessing all the things around it. And we, we live in a time right now where that is happening under your nose, and you may never even know about it. 
Jesus is a real king. He is building a real kingdom. He is right now, as we speak this morning, there are 37 church leaders in Uganda preaching the word of God with greater power and effectiveness, not while we sit here. They're in a different time zone, but they beat you to it this morning, okay? Because the kingdom is a real thing, and it's almost impossible to believe this. I would understand if you do not believe this, but this is what scripture teaches, that the primary place The kingdom of God exercises its authority is in local churches. Congregations of people, flawed people, just like this one here, gathered together under the the authority of Jesus and under his word to lift up his name. Why am I starting with that this morning? Because church, the word church means called out ones, and it's right there in verse 9. We, have, we, were, we exist because Jesus, the King, called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And today we're going to talk about why. The church is not a club. It is not a volunteer organization. The church is a gathering of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven that the King has called out of the world to discharge our duties as citizens of the kingdom of God. When you said yes to Jesus... We've talked about several things in this series. When you said yes to Jesus, you were redeemed out of slavery to sin and death into life. You were legally acquitted of every charge that could be leveled against you. You were adopted into God's family. And what we're going to see this week is that when you said yes to Jesus, your citizenship was legally transferred from darkness into the kingdom of light. So you should think of your baptism as your naturalization ceremony into a new kingdom. Anyone ever seen a naturalization ceremony where immigrants stand together, they raise their right hand, they make a pledge to to their new nation? That's what baptism is, essentially. And that comes with certain rights and responsibilities, and that's what we're going to talk about. First Peter is written to Christians scattered all over the Roman Empire to help them understand their place in the world. And that's what we're going to read about. Okay, 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's start in verse 9 again and we'll go through 17. Here's our reading. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, Fear God, honor the emperor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All those phrases in verse 9, if you'd look at verse 9 with me real quick, 
All those phrases come from the Old Testament. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Each phrase comes either from Exodus, which is about uh, how God called Israel out of slavery, or it's from Isaiah, where God called Israel out of Babylon. So let's just take a look at each one really quickly. Chosen race comes from Isaiah 43, 20. Chosen race just means that we are not distinguished by the color of our skin or the shape of our facial features, but by a new way of thinking and living. The church is meant to stand out like a new species of human being in some sense. The word race is the Greek word uh, genos. It's where we get the word genus, as in genus and species. You are a new branch on the human family tree, Peter is saying. And just so you know, that's how they were perceived in the first century. We have this uh, ancient Roman writer named Suetonius, for example, who wrote, punishment was inflicted on the Christians, a new genus, a class of men, given to a new and mischievous superstition. Other ancient writers accused Christians of being haters of mankind and antisocial because they had withdrawn from a lot of the things that they used to be entertained by. Okay? They withdrew from the theaters. They, withdrew, they stopped going to races. They wouldn't go see gladiators kill each other anymore. Most of all, Christians in the first century stood out because they withdrew from pagan uh, worship festivities and festivals. And the thing is that in, you know, in, in the ancient world, like all of life revolved around pagan temples and festivals. So if you were, you know, you went to a wedding, it was in a pagan temple, you went to a meeting of the local union, they burned incense to their favorite god, you, you know, all of life, all your social life, business happened in this context and Christians withdrew from those places and they were accused of being haters of mankind. They really were different. And that's the, that, that's the point. But be, despite all that, Christianity grew because people were attracted to their goodness. Okay? The royal priesthood, then he says, you are a royal priesthood. This is from Exodus chapter 19. The role of a priest is to mediate the relationship between God and people. So the, the priest uh, speaks to the people from God, brings the word of God. He speaks to them to comfort them, to convict, to convict them, and to, and to give them moral and spiritual clarity, okay? He also represents the people to God. So he prays for the people, he burns sacrifices for the people, and he stands in the gap between God and his people. Now, Israel had, you know, priests who did this. But in Exodus chapter 19, God says that actually the whole nation of Israel was intended to be that for the whole world. So if the world wanted to know God, Israel would be there in the gap to show them what God is like. And now Peter is saying that role belongs to the church. You are a royal priesthood. Now, Jesus has offered the only sacrifice that's ever going to be needed. Okay, so we don't need to worry about sacrifices, but we are told as God's people to bring a sacrifice of praise when we gather and to offer our whole lives as a living sacrifice. This is the way that we work out our worship as well. That means, okay, 
that this morning, starting in the South Pacific Islands, through Japan, through China, through the Middle East, through Africa, through Europe, thousands and thousands of congregations of Christ followers have met today to give praise and thanksgiving to the living God. There's this place in Habakkuk chapter 2 where he says a day is coming when the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And we are beginning, just beginning to get a glimpse of that right now in your lifetime. So in a very real sense, local congregations like the one you're sitting in right now bring the nations to God because you hold a dual citizenship. You are a citizen of the kingdom of God and you are still, most of you, still citizens of the United States. And when we say yes to Jesus, we get to stand in the presence of God as Americans. And we're told to fulfill this priestly role where we intercede for our neighbors, our friends, and our nation, and we uh, speak to the nations on behalf of God to comfort them, to convict them, and to bring moral and spiritual clarity. So we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. He says a holy nation, that holy just means to be set apart for something. There can only ever be one Christian nation, and that is the church. And he goes on to say, you are a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. To, to proclaim the excellencies of God means just to praise him and honor him and to celebrate who he is. And that is why we exist. Okay, when we talk about the church around here, we try to be real careful to say, you know, thus and such is a part of why the church exists. I don't need to give you that disclaimer this morning. This is it. This is why the church exists to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his light. First Corinthians says, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. So we're doing that in our singing, in our preaching, but you are doing it when you bag groceries this week and change diapers and lead companies and fly airplanes and whatever it is God has given you to do. We exist to proclaim the excellencies of God. Just our existence, think about this. Just our existence as a people bears witness throughout the world this morning that darkness is not winning. Okay, so in Babylon and in Uvalde, Texas, and Buffalo, New York, and in Kiev and Moscow and in South Sudan and everywhere, there are these little embassies of the kingdom of God full of people bearing witness to the honor and glory of Jesus to let the nations know God is not done with you, God is ready to save. He's ready to heal. He is ready to receive any who turn to him. And that's our mission to the nations. Jesus said, I will build my church, my called out ones. I will build it, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. And verse 10, verse 10 is from the prophet Hosea. And I, you know, next week, you've already heard about this, but next week I want to invite you back when we begin a brand new teaching series in the book of Hosea. It's, it's about the character of God 
and his heart toward people who've gone astray. I really want to encourage you to join us. We've, I've started some of the study and the work on this. I am loving Hosea, and you will too, or it's you, okay? It's not Hosea. So come back next week. But Hosea was a prophet at a time when Israel uh, had failed in its role as, as priests and as a holy nation, and Hosea begins to speak to them of a time when he's going to restore that role. And he says, once you were a people, or once you were not a people, now you are. Once you did not receive mercy, now you have. And Peter is saying that this church, local congregations like this, are a fulfillment of that promise to Hosea. So this is from John Piper. He says, the church of Jesus Christ is the most significant institution in the world. The assembly of the redeemed, the company of the saints, the children of God are more significant in world history than any other group, organization, or nation. The United States of America compares to the church of Jesus Christ like a speck of dust compares to the sun. The drama of international relations compares to the mission of the church like a kindergarten riddle compares to Hamlet or King Lear. And all the pomp of May Day in Red Square and the pageantry of New Year's in Pasadena fade into formless nothingness against the splendor of the bride of Christ. Take heed how you judge. And then he quotes 1 Peter, all flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord and his people abide forever. So having talked about who we are, Peter then turns, I'm going to summarize the rest of what we read under three headings. He turns to, okay, how do you live wisely, if this is who we are, how do you live wisely in the world? And I'm going to summarize it under three headings, okay? You need to understand your position in the world, live honorably, and do good. That's my summary, okay? Understand the position that you're in. He begins verse 11 by reminding us that we are sojourners in exile. Okay, so in other words, you are chosen, royal, holy, and homeless. Everybody got that? You are chosen, royal, holy, and you are homeless. Welcome. And the rules, you know, are just different for sojourners and exiles. They just are. Everything is harder. Your legal status is in much graver doubt. Your life, if you're an immigrant, is held up to greater scrutiny. A natural-born citizen will be given the benefit of the doubt. If a, if a foreigner puts his toe out of line, he's in a lot of trouble. Not only him, but the people group that he represents. People will make the craziest assumptions about immigrants and foreigners. This they'll say the craziest stuff. And Peter's just letting you know, that's the church, okay? Uh, you're not at home. You are a guest in your country, so live accordingly. And this means, and I'm speaking especially now to those of you who've just graduated or you're about to graduate, this means that if you want to follow Jesus, you need to get comfortable with being misunderstood. You need to think through now how you're going to respond to misunderstanding in a gracious way. Because even if you achieve the highest levels of success in business, politics, sport, community service, or whatever, you are fundamentally always going to be a foreigner. 
it, there, people are going to make crazy, crazy assumptions about you. And when your foreignness comes out, you just need to know whatever you've achieved, you can lose it overnight. Because that's how it is when you're not a citizen. I, I remember uh, with great clarity. Now, this is 12 years ago or so. I used to work at the University of Wisconsin down the road. And I, I led a ministry called InterVarsity there. And InterVarsity was uh, one of the largest, if not the largest, organizations on campus. It was very, very active on campus. We cultivated a, a really wonderful working relationship with the administration there. Uh, the, you know, the school looked to us to help with student events and things like that. And uh, in particular, we'd worked really hard to cultivate a great uh, working trust relationship with the uh, director of student services. But I remember uh, being in her office the day that she learned that we adhered to a traditional biblical understanding of marriage and gender. And she cried. She cried in front of me in the office because she felt so uh, betrayed. It's like, it's like you've, you've gotten to know someone and you trust them, you trust them, and then you find out they're a pedophile or something. You're just blown away. And it, I'm just sharing this to say, no matter what level of trust you achieve, no matter how far you go in business, sport, civic engagement, all these other things, you will always be a foreigner. And someday that's going to come out. Now, among our cultural elites in the media and business and academia and so forth, the church is viewed with a lot of suspicion right now. Okay? It used, you know, 25 years ago our, our message was strange. Today our message is dangerous. It's viewed as regressive and oppressive. Once again, the church is in some quarters viewed as haters of mankind. Now, especially with what we, we what the scriptures teach with regard to gender and sexuality. Just so, you know, all the older people know this already. So I'm speaking to younger people right now. There are virtually no companies of any significant size in the United States whose HR or diversity departments are going to be excited about the biblical vision of sexuality and gender. And 10, ten years ago, I never would have said this. 10 years ago, I would have been rolling my eyes at what I'm telling you right now, but this is reality now. There are people in this congregation who've been denied promotions and bonuses because they're not sufficiently enthusiastic about what about the company's diversity policies, okay? Not, not because they've actually done anything bigoted or hateful or anything like that, but you just need to prepare yourself now for the moment when you're sitting around the lunch table with your friends or you're on a business trip with seven of your colleagues sitting around a table and it comes out that you're a Christian. And someone will say, you're a Christian? Why do you hate gay people? And you say, well, What? What, aren't you, are you just another shill for Donald Trump? Aren't you, it, you know, it's because of people like you that trans kids are depressed and wanting to take their own lives. You know, do you hate immigrants too? I mean, it's, it's, check down the list. And they're just, you know, there, there's a whole narrative in the culture about who you are before you've even shown up. And you just need, you need to make peace with being an immigrant with being a foreigner because that's what you are and you need to decide now 
I'm going to respond with gentleness and kindness, and I'm not going to go into attack mode. This is, if we were to keep reading in 1 Peter, this is 1 Peter 3.15. Peter says, in this, every graduate, make this your verse this week, okay? In your hearts, set apart Christ the Lord as holy, okay? Just make up your mind. Are you going to serve and live for Jesus or not? But he goes on, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Okay, please think about it ahead of time. Yet do it, he says, with gentleness and respect. I think that Daniel is like the, it, that, he is the quintessential example for us of what it looks like to live in the context we live in right now. Daniel is a great picture of living as a foreigner in a foreign nation. He's, a, you know, he's lifted up to like the highest levels of government and he has to live his life in a, in a context where basically his beliefs about God are anathema to the culture around him, yet he manages to do it with respect and gentleness. Look at the way Daniel talks to his boss in chapter one. You, you, you should look at it, think it through, and make your peace with being a sojourner and a foreigner. Second, he says, live honorably. He says, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Okay? The Greco-Roman world, just like ours, people were driven along by their desires and passions. They lived for the pleasure of the moment. He's just, this is pretty black and white. He's saying just don't, self-control is a fruit of the Spirit of God. Live a self-controlled, holy life. But he goes on to say, you know, not everything in every culture is totally corrupt. There are, every culture has things that are honorable about it, and you should honor those things. So he says, keep your conduct among the nations honorable. Like there is no place in the world where lying, cheating, cowardice, and laziness are celebrated by a majority of people. On the other hand, courage, generosity, honesty, and integrity will always be held in high regard by a majority of the people. And so Peter's just saying, seek to live an admirable and virtuous life. It's not rocket science. It's not always black and white either. Okay, so this is, so I think um, being, living a self-controlled holy life, that's a little more black and white, okay? Living an honorable life takes a little, it takes a lot of wisdom. Okay, because what's honorable in any given situation, you know, it's, it's not always 100% clear. The point, though, is Peter is saying what the world thinks about you does matter uh, because you reflect on the church and on your king in everything that you do. So live your life in a manner that even an outsider would find to be honorable. <clears throat> okay, so just as, as simple examples... We live in a culture, if you didn't know this, you live in a culture where being on time to work is, is considered a sign of integrity and just being a good person. So be to, be to work five minutes early. There are other countries that you may be called to someday where you know, leaving a meeting early to get to the next thing on time is really considered poor taste. It's inhospitable. You're not valuing them. You got to know where you live a little bit. Here's just a few just simple, dumb examples that no one here has ever done, and that's why I'm going to share them, okay? Just a few things about living an honorable life. Finding the things your culture values and as much as you can going along with that. 
Uh, some of you have, you know, just these amazing, giant, beautiful diesel pickup trucks. You know what I'm talking about? And, and so you take a video of you just revving the engine and this huge plume of black smoke pours out. You know what I'm talking about, right? Okay, that's totally fine. Do not post it on social media with the meme, Happy Earth Day. Does that, does that make sense? Okay, what, what, are you, what are you doing there? I mean, you're, you're just signaling to the world, screw you. You know what I mean? I don't care what you care about. I don't value what you value. That is not a fight you're going to... Why would you pick that fight? Or the, or the day after a mass shooting, why would you post a picture of yourself with an AR-15 across your chest with a look on your face that says, you just come and get it. You just try. Why would you do that? that like, people see that and they translate that as like, how can anyone be so obtuse, so completely out of touch with the nation's grief and all this other stuff? Peter's just saying to, to you, to the church, let's use our heads a little bit because there are larger things at stake than you and your freedom. Like the integrity and the reputation of God's people's at stake. All right. So, when they, so he goes on to say, so when they call you evildoers, and they will, they would see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The day of visitation, is, he's talking about the return of Christ and the judgment of humanity. And he's just saying, win them over with your goodness. Goodness does win people over. Light is always going to be a compelling thing. So, well, understand the position that you're in. Live honorably. And finally, he says, do good. He goes on and he says, be subject for the Lord's sake. To every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. It would be easy for Christians living in a society like Rome, where Caesar is just like a total doofus, to say, hey, you know what? Jesus is my king. I've been bought by the blood. Of, you know, I'm just, I'm good to go. So I'm just going to live in open rebellion against Caesar because he's like this wicked, crazy, pagan person. And Peter writes this. For that situation. He says, no, uh, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. One of the things the Bible teaches, and every Christian needs to understand, is that uh, even in a, in a democratic republic like the one we live in, God appoints the leaders. Okay, so, so if you live in Hudson, your mayor is Rich O'Connor. I can never remember his name. Yeah. <laughs> your governor is Governor Evers. Your president is Mr. Biden. And the Bible says God appointed them. And he has his own purposes for doing those things. And they're always good purposes for the church. They also have been given an incredibly difficult job. And so, the, you know, God's word to churches is as much as you can cooperate with those God has put in authority over you because they're there for your good. So, you need to understand, as people who hold a dual citizenship, that there are going to be times when you are operating out of different citizenships. So, um, as an example, um, the church, as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, as an ambassador of Christ, you can say with absolute authority to one another and to the world, we are called to love our neighbor and do what is best for them, okay? 
When you speak that way, you're speaking for the king, because that's like super clear. So a governor hands, I'm, we're going to talk about this now because it's a long time ago and hopefully we can all just have a rational conversation. So a governor hands down a masking mandate, okay? And there's going to be disagreement about what is loving. And there are going to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven who are going to marshal their arguments for, for masking being a dangerous precedent, this is a bad idea, and others who are saying this is a rational, healthy public health policy. And both of them will write letters to the editor as citizens of the United States. And we would encourage you to do that. We would encourage you to exercise the rights you've been afforded as citizens of the United States, but to, to recognize the difference between when you're speaking for the king and when you're speaking as a citizen of the United States. Does that make sense? So you can't, in marshalling your argument, uh, invoke the name of King Jesus to say, thus saith the Lord about the science of masking, for example. You could do the same, th you know, there's so many things you could do that with. On the, like on the subject of immigration, we can say with the authority of King Jesus to the world that the people on our southern border absolutely bear the image of God, that their lives are worth as much as ours, that they're to be respected as image bearers of God. Now, how to care for them, building a wall, not building a wall, now you're speaking as citizens of the United States, and you're saying, this is what I think is best. And when you write those letters to the editor, you do so with the knowledge, I have brothers and sisters that I worship alongside who disagree, so I'm not going to write it in the tone of all these stupid people who hate immigrants, blah, 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 because you worship next to those people. Does that make sense? There's got to be some level of wisdom of I, I hold a dual citizenship and sometimes I'm operating out of this one and sometimes I'm operating out of the other one. Does that make sense? But with this, just, yeah, sorry, I got off on a tangent, sorry. With this text right here, you know, we live in a context right now, especially for the political right, where any capitulation to a government order is seen as spiritual capitulation. And that is just not true. It is what, what we see here in 1 Peter 2, chapter 2 is that it, it's possible to comply with a governing authority even when we don't totally agree with them. It's not always a spiritual capitulation. You're not just bowing to Baal. There are times when we're, we're called to say, well, I, I wouldn't do it that way, Mr. Governor, but you're not asking me to sin. You're not asking us to transgress God's law. We're going to go along with this. Send your uh, emails to Larry Zyman this week. He would love to hear from you, okay? <laughs> For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. What he's talking about is not just your private piety. He's not just talking about having quiet times. He's not just talking about paying your taxes and being a law-abiding citizen. Okay, everybody has to do that. He's talking about doing good as the people of God that is so noticeable but the authorities actually sit up and take notice. So just to, here are a couple of examples. As a church, I think that FaithWorks is one of the best things on our calendar. It provides a real, measurable, noticeable public good. Our taxes are lower 
because of faith works, okay? Widows and widowers are taking care of. People struggling with, with deep mental health issues get their landscaping trimmed up and their house put back together. Uh, faith works actually raises the property value on people's blocks. Uh, shut-ins get their houses cleaned. Families with new babies get new gutters installed. Our county and city government employees get a great meal. They're honored for their service. Cemeteries are cleaned up. Schools get painted. Playgrounds get mulched. Breaks get fixed. And on and on the list goes. And we are known, this is our 12th year, I think, we are known in the county for doing good in large part because of faith works. Our missional communities function the same way. Every missional community has a person called a care coordinator whose job is to help that missional community to do good. We have a missional community whose whole focus is coming alongside expectant mothers. They're thinking about planting a new missional community to come alongside the foster care system. We have a full-time person here on staff named Karen Garden who takes care of the nurseries but also just does good for the community on your behalf. We have Larry Zyman is a lead chaplain for the St. Croix County Sheriff's Department. He's serving cops and their families. He's going for ride-alongs. He's the one who goes and does death notifications when someone dies in the county. We host a community garden over behind the property that we own over here where people without yards can come and grow good food for themselves. We set aside thousands of dollars every year to make sure that no one in this congregation and people outside of the congregation go without. And, that, and there's, even more, there's more going on I can't tell you about because it's not official yet. And all of this matters because Peter is saying what the world thinks about you does matter because you represent a real kingdom and a real king that is drawing all the nations into himself. So this is the will of God. Do good and you will put to silence you know, the ignorant talk of people who make these crazy assumptions sometimes about what we really believe. So here are the bookends. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. We're going to do some of that right now, okay? I'm going to invite you to pray as we wrap up. And even if maybe you haven't prayed in a really long time, you're just visiting this morning, I invite you to join us as you're comfortable. But I'm going to invite you to pray for our mayor, our governor, our president, and someone from the county board approached me after the first service and asked us to pray for the county board, okay? So we're going to do that too. Just right where you are, would you ask God to make them wise, to give them, uh, you know, an ability to make just laws? And I'll close this in just a second. Our Father in heaven, we are gathered to fulfill our calling as your people. Would you hear our prayers? God, we thank you for those that you have placed in authority over us, and we ask that you would bless them, that you would give them wisdom, that justice would prevail where we live. And Father, that whatever comes, you would give us grace to honor you in all that we do and say. We pray especially today for those who've just graduated high school or college. Would you prepare for them a good place wherever you're leading them, a place where they're going to meet you and be established in the gospel more deeply? And would you prepare them for good work 
in your kingdom. We ask this through Jesus. Amen. All right, why don't you stand and we'll sing.